0: and a warm welcome to our weekly service from Crescent Church Online. I know that you're missing the experience of regular worship with other brothers and sisters from our fellowship, but we give thanks to God that we have the ability to communicate through the internet. Let me give a big thank you to the guys and girls on our technical team who are making all of this possible. We hope that this service will be a blessing to you and that you'll have a sense of the Lord's presence as we worship Him. We're going to sing hymns, Read from the Bible, and then Jim Crooks will bring the message to us from God's Word. If you've been listening to these broadcasts over the last couple of weeks, you will know we've been focusing on the Gospel of John and the events leading to the crucifixion of Jesus. This morning, Jim's title is The Resurrection Story. In a moment, we will pray for God's blessing on the service, and after that, we'll sing that wonderful hymn that expresses the Christian's confidence in the resurrection. See what a morning, glorious and bright, with the dawning of hope in Jerusalem. And after that, Nicholas Greer will read from chapter 20 of the Gospel of John. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We give you thanks for your grace and mercy that you've shown to each one of us. We give thanks and acknowledge your great love for us. And at this time of the year, we think especially of the death and resurrection of your Son, We cannot fully comprehend what it meant for God, the creator of life and our universe, to subject himself to the cruelty of men and go all the way to the cross. We give thanks for all that was accomplished at Calvary and for the resurrection that showed that death was defeated and that your son's sacrificial death had satisfied the demands of a righteous God. So we come before you as your children with our sins forgiven And we ask for your continued protection at this time of great crisis in our country and across the world. We pray for the health of our Prime Minister and those who serve in the government. We ask that you will grant them wisdom as they take momentous decisions that will affect each one of us. We give thanks for the bravery and compassion of those who work on our health and social services. We know that some have paid the ultimate price with their lives for their dedication to their patients. We ask for protection for members of our fellowship, not just for resistance against the virus, but against the battle of loneliness and depression. May we at this time of great trouble bind more closely together and be aware and respond to the needs of others. We pray especially for the Ramsey family and others who are ill at this time. And so as we continue to worship together, grant us a sense of your presence And let this be a time of blessing to us all. Amen.
1: John chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her.
0: I hope that you've enjoyed uh, singing these hymns. And our next song is, I Cast My Mind to Calvary. After we've sung this hymn, Nicholas will continue reading from John chapter 20. I
2: cast my mind to Calvary Where Jesus bled and died for me I see His hands, His feet My Savior on That cursed dream His body bowed And drenched in tears They laid Him down In Joseph's tomb The ancient sea By heavy stone, Messiah still and all of. i yeah.
1: Put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name.
0: Our third hymn is When Peace Like a River. And the author of this hymn wrote in the fourth verse, But Lord, this for thee is thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, Blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. After we've sung this hymn, Jim will bring the message.
3: morning. We're coming to the end of our studies in John's Gospel Uh, and it's very appropriate that on this Easter Sunday we are turning to John chapter 20. I'd be grateful if you opened your Bibles to that part of God's Word and then follow the text as I move through it. Back in the days when life seemed normal we might expect our church to be full of the sound of people talking and instruments tuning up uh, in anticipation of a service full of Easter celebrations. But all over our country churches are closed and silent We huddle in our homes, anxiously watching as the political and economic foundations of the nation tremble. Our lives are full of fear and unhappiness. And strangely, that state of mind might help us better appreciate the Easter story, because so many of the Lord's disciples were in exactly that state on the first Easter Sunday. John chapter 20 falls very neatly into four sections. In verses 1 to 10, we learn about the empty tomb, Then in verses 11 through 18 uh, we are told the story of Mary Magdalene's encounter with the risen Christ. The third section is found in verses 19 to 22 and by this time we're in the evening of that first Easter Sunday and we see the Lord appear to a group of his disciples who have locked themselves in a room out of fear. The fourth section recorded in verses 24 through 31 records events that took place exactly one week later. John finishes this section and the chapter with an insight into why he wrote the gospel in the first place. So with weary predictability, I will use these four sections to make four points. It's my prayer that God's word will bring hope and peace and understanding into your hearts through this famous text. Let's get underway by considering verses 1 to 10, the first of our four sections. We know from the other gospels that a mighty angel had arrived at the Lord's tomb. He was so terrified the Roman soldiers guarding the tomb that they fainted, and then when they woke up, they ran away. And this senior angel then rolled the stone away from the tomb and sat on it for a while. John doesn't provide any of that material. We simply see Mary Magdalene walk from her temporary lodgings to the garden where the Lord's body had been buried. She could well have been staying in Bethany, so her journey might have taken her first to John's lodging in Jerusalem, where she met up with some other women who loved the Lord Jesus. Perhaps two other groups of women converged on the garden around about the same time, because women like Susanna would have had permanent homes into a different part of Jerusalem. So perhaps one group used the Genath Gate, others used the Ephraim Gate. And when you piece all the accounts together, you get this sense of increasing chaos, with people running back and forth to make that 10-minute journey between the garden and the city. There's also a great deal of angelic. Activity going on. The angels had been busy during Christ's birth, they had been held back during his crucifixion, but now heaven's armies are moving swiftly. And as he did with his account of the cross, John chooses to leave a lot of that detail out. He focuses a lot of the action on Mary Magdalene. By the time she arrives, dawn has arrived, and suddenly she sees that the great stone at the entrance of the tomb has been rolled away. So without looking inside, she spins around and runs back to John's house in the city. And her news causes Peter and John to sprint to the tomb to investigate what has happened. John's unique focus in his account of the empty tomb is on the grave clothes that were inside. Eventually he follows Peter into the tomb and he sees the linen cloths lying undisturbed, with the head cloth folded neatly nearby. So we should ask ourselves, why does John focus on the grave clothes when the other gospel writers barely mention them? They're clearly significant. They caused John to see and believe. And that's going to be a crucial phrase in this chapter. Now remember, John had not encountered the risen Christ yet. He hadn't even run into the angels. The simple fact of the empty tomb and the way the grave clothes were arranged caused him to see and believe. And the answer to this puzzle comes when we consider the arc of John's final journey. Way back in chapter 11, uh, when this final journey gets underway, we are told the story of Lazarus being raised from the grave. Jesus arrives at that tomb where Lazarus had been led some days earlier. And the Greek words used to describe his emotional state during that encounter, they're really strong. As the author of life confronts death, John uses a word that was sometimes used to describe a stallion rearing up on its hind legs. The Lord's command was obeyed, and so Lazarus shambles out of his tomb, still wrapped in his grave clothes. He must have looked something like an Egyptian mummy, bound up hand and foot with his face covered uh, with a headcloth. So what is the difference between these two resurrection accounts? Well, Lazarus was still a dead man walking. We all are. Death was still a terrible force to be reckoned with. If you like, Lazarus was only allowed out on parole from death's prison house. One day, like the rest of us, Lazarus would die again. But now John stares down at the grave clothes in the Lord's tomb. It was obvious that the Lord's body had passed through those clothes. The head cloth had been tidied away because it was no longer needed. In Second Timothy chapter 1, The Apostle Paul talks of the power of God which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. When Paul talks about death being abolished, he means it has been overthrown. If you like, its grim fortress walls have been torn down. So we can view that moment when our souls separate from our bodies in a completely new light. Earlier this week, the elders were praying for you in one of our interminable Zoom meetings. And we ask the Lord to prepare you for what might lie up ahead. And perhaps that is what God's word is doing to your heart right now. For the Christian believer, physical death is not the grim ogre that it is for the unbeliever. For us, death is simply falling asleep. We fall asleep down here and immediately wake up in heaven. Paul even describes physical death as a gain because it is a gateway to being with Christ forever, which is far better. Death has been rendered so innocuous that back in chapter 11, Jesus could say that believers, though they die, will never die. Death has been set aside like a neatly folded headcloth. Life and immortality have been brought into light. Now, of course, no sane person looks forward to the process of dying. It can be painful and undignified. We have the comfort that our good shepherd walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. He has walked that path himself, so he knows the way home. There is a tremendous comfort here for those who are left behind. Technically, we shouldn't refer to a believer who has gone home to heaven as dead. He or she is dead in Christ. As most of you know, my wife went home to heaven um, some years ago when she was only 36. But Ruth and I are still in Christ. So there is no vast gulf between us, no ugly ditch. One moment the Lord Jesus can be having a conversation with Ruth, and the next minute he can be listening to me. The Church of Christ is like a seamless robe. Death hides, but it can no longer divide. The dead in Christ are just in the room next to us, and the risen Christ can walk through walls. So my first point is that the tyranny of death has been broken. To help you find strength in that teaching, you might want to quietly now to ask God to allow you to see your life as John saw it, when he was standing in that tomb. To see your lives stretching out into eternity. To grasp the reality that your soul, your personal identity is immortal. And that will start to help you view death as a comma and not a full stop. In verses 11 to 18... John records the encounter Mary Magdalene had with the risen Lord Jesus. I'm going to entitle this section, The Shepherd Returns. Mary is lost in sadness. Jesus had rescued her from a lost life, a life dominated by spiritual oppression. He had become her leader, her teacher, her guide. Life only made sense because it revolved around him. But now he was dead. And on the night of his death, Mary had followed Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. She watched the great stone being rolled across the entrance, and then she simply sat down and waited. But now has come the final indignity. The Lord's body has been taken away, and she stands there weeping inconsolably. The two angels tasked with helping Mary and the other distraught women um, weren't like that utterly terrifying angel uh, who had moved the stone. Now, the angel's questions were logical, but I'm not sure Mary found them very helpful. The evidence that had persuaded John to believe was not going to persuade Mary. All she wanted was for her life to return to what it had been like before the crucifixion. Some of the C.S. Lewis books, uh, called The Chronicles of Narnia, have been turned into films. And in one of those films, I can't remember which one, there's a scene when the lion returns. The great Aslan comes back. And up to that point, the soundtrack uh, has depicted the nervousness, the anxiety felt uh, by his followers. Some were close to fleeing the scene. But then we catch sight of the great lion. We see his mane through a forest of flags. Then his noble visage is glimpsed for a second. The great paws move majestically across the turf. And suddenly we know that all will be well. Our fears drain away. Because a lion has returned. In chapter 19, John quoted from the prophecy by Zechariah. And in that prophecy, we read these words Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. Well, that is exactly what happened. The Lord Jesus' little flock scattered in fear, acutely conscious of their vulnerability. But in these verses, we see the great shepherd return, return to gather his flock back together. And he calls them by name because they know his voice. The moment when Jesus simply calls Mary by her name and she spins round in joyful surprise, it's one of the most moving moments in all literature. She falls at his feet and clings to them. The good shepherd had returned, so all would be well. So with us. This crisis has scattered us, but the good shepherd, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has returned after his victory over death and he walks among us. He calls us each by name and so we know that all will be well. The Lord never got embarrassed when people touched him so we shouldn't misunderstand verses 17 and 18. When the Lord tells Mary not to cling on to him he's in effect saying, Mary, this isn't just about returning to the way things were. It's much, much better than that. Once I ascend to my Father in heaven, then the Spirit of God will build a new spiritual family of brothers and sisters. Every one of you will be indwelt by my Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. So a whole new level of relationship has been made possible. At the moment, I am your Rabboni, your teacher. But now, we are also brother and sister. So we have thought about the tyranny of death being broken. We have seen the good shepherd return to gather his flock. But in the third section, verses 19 to 23, we watch Christ give peace to his people. His disciples were terribly afraid on the evening of that first Easter Sunday. Maybe they worried that they would be accused of stealing the Lord's body. But for whatever reason, their hearts were churned up with anxiety. And suddenly, Jesus appears in their midst. He identifies himself and he says, peace be with you. In fact, he says it twice. Peace be with you. We might easily dismiss this saying as a normal Jewish phrase. It was used either to welcome someone or to say farewell. Back in chapter 14, when the Lord had gathered his disciples in the upper room, he bequeaths his peace to them. And on that occasion, it was on the context of saying farewell, as he prepared to travel the lonely road to Golgotha. But here it is a welcome. There will be no more farewells. Christian peace is not a serene state of mind, nor is it an absence of trouble. It's a gift from Christ. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. In that chapter, the Lord makes the point that the world will never be able to give us peace. Our society is built upon restless striving and conflict and discontentment. So all the current fashionable talk about mindfulness and achieving inner peace is almost completely hot air. Peace is a gift received from Christ. And that gift is the Lord's own transcendent peace, the peace that absorbed all the conflicts and wars and hatred that we ever produced and which triumphed over them. As we move to the end of this section, we will see Christ foreshadow the formation of the church. We will see him commission us for the great task of evangelism. But before any of that happens, we need to receive his peace. At a practical level, that process requires us to spend time in his company. As we spend time in the scriptures and see the Lord's calm, unruffled reactions to life's injustices, we start to share in his peace. When we watch him asleep in the boat while the storm rages, we get a sense of his utter childlike trust in his Father in heaven. And gradually the constant churning in our mind starts to calm down. The anxiety levels drop low enough for us to be able to think again. Like the frightened disciples in that room, we can start to think, what is my role in this awful situation? What's my job? So rather than being paralysed by fear, what can and should I be doing? There's tremendous psychological health to be gained here. As a Christian community, we need to calm ourselves. We need to calm ourselves down sufficiently so that we can remember our job. And verses 21 through 23 tell us what that job is. The Lord enacts a little parable. It's a bit like his feet washing back in chapter 13. And he's foreshadowing the day at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would form the Christian church. And having done that, he then commissions them to preach the gospel. You see, as a gospel preacher, I can confidently tell people if they are forgiven or not. I'm authorised to do that only because I'm a minister of the gospel. I'm not remotely special in that regard because we're all ministers of the gospel. If we see someone respond to the gospel with repentance and faith, then we can tell them that they are forgiven. It is our job, brothers and sisters, in these difficult days to exude a quiet confidence, not to be paralysed by fear, seeing ourselves as cowering victims. We need to know the peace of Christ so that we can get on with our job as ministers of the gospel. Now, please don't think I'm advocating for imprudent action. We need to obey the very sensible and clear advice from our government. But don't be afraid to tell non-Christian friends that you're praying for them, praying for their loved ones. Don't be afraid to talk in a way that reveals your Christian hope in the face of death. In so doing, you can do what every New Testament book does. You can wish God's peace to those you know and love. The final section of the chapter runs from 24 through 31 most of this section is a record of the Apostle Thomas's doubts and how they were resolved. The last two verses are usually carved off into a separate little block, but I'm going to suggest that they are integrated with Thomas's story. So let's take a step step back for a moment and see the flow of thought in this chapter. After the tyranny of death has been overthrown, the Good Shepherd returns to gather his scattered flock. He calms their minds sufficiently to grasp what their great mission is going to be the proclamation of the gospel to the entire world. But that raises an obvious problem. How are they going to convince people who have never had an encounter physically with the risen Christ? We are in that category. I never got to stand in the empty tomb and inspect those grave clothes. I never saw Christ in a in a room and say, peace unto you. The question being raised here is, how do people who have not seen come to believe? In verse eight, we are told that John saw and believed. Thomas takes that approach to its logical conclusion. He says, "Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, if that was the only route to belief, then the Christian Church would not have grown very much now, Thomas is to be commended for declaring the most christological statement in John's Gospel. He stands in front of a man and says my lord and my god but notice the lord's response blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed he says so how is that to be done how is the great role of the church to bring millions of people who have never seen christ to faith in him well the clue is the same clue that we find in the previous chapter it's in the word writing or scripture Back in the first section of chapter twenty, John believed on the basis of raw historical data. He saw it first hand and believed. But notice that he adds, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that He must rise from the dead. The way that millions of people who have never seen Christ come to faith in him is through the Scripture. But not just the Old Testament Scriptures. In the last two verses of the chapter it is clear that John is self aware that he himself is writing Scripture. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. If Thomas' approach had been the only road to belief, the church would have died in infancy. But John is explaining to us how the Great Commission will be fulfilled through the construction of the New Testament, those scriptures which explain the raw historical facts of our Lord's life, death, burial and resurrection. God the Holy Spirit has so inspired these new scriptures that people from all cultures can become convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So the job of the evangelist is to explain the scriptures to people. In this study we have learned four things. We have watched the tyranny of death being broken. We have seen the good shepherd return to gather his scattered flock. We have listened to Christ give peace to his people and we have seen new scripture being formed before our eyes. This church has been going for over 150 years. I have been here for 45 of them. And during that time we have experienced times of difficulty, times of real sadness, and times of quiet growth. But I am not sure anything compares to the situation in which we now find ourselves. It is quite possible, brothers and sisters that the Lord will call a number of us home in the coming weeks and months. So it's essential that we think deeply about the realities opened up by this passage so that we are prepared for what might come. It is equally important that we allow the Good Shepherd to bind this little flock together, uniting us with sincere, big-hearted love. Let's ask him to calm us, to give us his peace, So that we can start to think once again about what our job is. We have to help people who have never seen the risen Christ come to believe in him. And we do that by explaining the scriptures to them in a winsome, rational and clear way. I know a number of us have got the sense that God is moving in our society in these days. He is shaking it to its foundations. So we may have a pivotal role in holding out truth to the nation over these next months. We have an even more strategic role in lifting the nation up before our God, asking him to have mercy upon us. So on this bleak Easter Sunday, receive the peace of Christ, calm down, and focus on the job on hand. Let's pray. After I have prayed, we will sing a final hymn. Our Father in heaven, on this Easter Sunday, we praise you that through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, death has been abolished and life and immortality brought to light through the gospel. Lord, our church is empty this morning, but we rejoice that the tomb is empty, and because of that great historical fact, we know that there is a man standing on the other side of death. Our lives would be futile and pitiful affairs if the resurrection had not happened. But we say with Paul, Christ is indeed raised from the dead, the first fruits of them that sleep. We ask that you give us understanding about these matters. Grip our imaginations, stretch our minds as we explore the truth that life does not end with physical death. Replace hazy and vague ideas about an afterlife with the full vigour of a biblical understanding of the eternal kingdom. In so doing, Father, remove our fear of death and help us confront our own mortality with calm confidence. At the same time, Lord, in your mercy we ask that you will heal those of our loved ones who are sick. If it be your will, Lord, restore them to us. We ask for your protection over the most vulnerable members of our church family. We also ask you to protect the large number of medical professionals among us, and we thank you for them. Watch over their families. Keep them strong as they follow in the footsteps of the divine physician. We thank you that our Lord Jesus is our Good Shepherd. Help us to look for and discern his kindly voice over these next days. Thank you for his quiet, protective presence in our lives. Because he has returned from his great battle, we know deep down that everything is going to be well. Lord Jesus, grant us your peace. We pray particularly for those among us whose minds are churned up with anxiety and fear. We ask that the gentle, calming influence of the Spirit of God, who has chosen to reside in our personalities, would be felt. Calm us, Lord, so that we can think about our role in this crisis. We ask in your grace that you would use this flawed, small little fellowship for your glory. Help us to hold out the word of life, to explain the scriptures so that those who have never seen you will come to believe in you. Our Father, we pray earnestly for our nation. The political and economic foundations of society have been shaken. We ask that men and women would repent of the hateful ideologies that have wreaked such havoc in our civic life in the past 30 years. Tear down those intellectual strongholds, Lord, we pray. We thank you that this crisis has forced people to live as families once more. So strengthen relationships between fathers and their children. Cause love and loyalty to blossom once again among married men and women. Build a society that truly values the elderly and which protects life including the life of the unborn. We pray for all the households within this fellowship, Lord. Use this time to strengthen marriages, help parents to show spiritual leadership to their children, show loyalty to you and your church. And now we thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name. Amen.
4: Grace of God has reached for me. So